0: This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family wealth and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more.
1: Real estate is like planting a tree. You're gonna wait a long time before it bears fruit, but when it does bear fruit, you just eat that fruit every single year. And once you get orchards of them, you can be a wealthy person and it's very hard to lose money that way.
0: dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids & Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today... We're talking about investing in real estate. Yes, my friends, my search for information continues as Nicole and I save up for our first rental property. I'm trying to look at all the angles before we proceed. Really, it's uh, you know looking at the mortgage route or or buying all in cash route, and and one method that's been super intriguing for us lately is this method called Burr. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's an acronym. And we're going to get into that today. Um, And the man who's going to enlighten us about the magical ways of the burr is David Green. David is the co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, the author of long distance real estate investing, how to buy rehab and manage out of state rental property and a top-producing real estate agent in Northern California. He's recently written a new book focused on the BRRRR strategy, and we're going to learn why he thinks it's the hottest strategy in real estate today. Welcome to the show, David.
1: Thank you, Andy. That was a great introduction, man.
0: Hey, well, you're doing some great things. I'm excited to talk to you. So, David, I I, I teased it a little bit. What does Burr stand for?
1: So BRRRR is an acronym, like you said, and it stands for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. And it's really just the order in which you the most efficient way to buy and hold rental property is. And it would kind of stand in comparison to what we call the traditional
0: method. So let's talk about that. So why, why do you think it's uh, better than the traditional method?
1: So when you buy real estate which is an amazing investment when you hold it for a long period of time the the hardest part of doing it well is that you put your money into a deal like the down payment then you put more money into fixing the house up then your money sits in that house while it will earn you a return and that return will be really big over the years it's very difficult to do it at scale because there's so much money that's required up front and the only way to get that money back is to sell or refinance the property now when you sell a property you have capital gains taxes you have real estate commissions, you have closing costs. You may have to fix the house up before you sell it. You may have to evict a tenant. There's a lot of expenses that are associated with the sale of a property. When you refinance a property, all you have are closing costs. Mm -hmm. So it's much cheaper to get money out through a refinance and avoid taxes and commissions and everything else. Uh, The problem is most people don't buy property that they have enough equity where they can pull their money back out. So the burst strategy is all about buying a fixer upper home, making it worth more, and then pulling your money out once the property is worth more So you can go buy another house.
0: I love it. Okay, well, we're going to dive more into Burr in a little bit, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background with real estate. You've actually had a lot of success. Um, So how did you first get into real estate?
1: You know, I kind of backed into it, actually. I had a buddy who was buying a property to live in in Lathrop, California, and he got accepted into Bible college. So he was moving away and he was going to lose his earnest money deposit. And he was telling me about it. And I said, well, let me go take a look at it. Maybe I can buy it. I just figured at some point I would need a house. I would have a family and I would need somewhere to live. So I thought I'd buy it and rent it out if I liked it. And then move into it when it was time. So we went, we checked out the house. It looked like a good deal. I had already been kind of checking out what home prices had been doing. This was in 2008. So the market had already crashed and it was really low. And I ended up talking to his real estate agent and said, Hey, Matt can't buy this house, but I think I can. What do I have to do? And she said, get pre-approved through the lender. And she, uh, she wrote another offer for $20,000 less than what he had added under contract with. And the seller agreed to it. So I ended up buying a house and had no idea what I was going to do. That was kind of funny. I showed up with like my mom's vacuum cleaner and some Windex. And I just was like, well, I guess I better try to clean it. And I found a renter on Craigslist and I basically did everything wrong. I didn't run a credit check. I had no idea how to manage a property. I had no idea what I was doing and I got a result that I should have expected by doing everything wrong. I I had a tenant that took me for, took advantage of me and ended up stealing some money. So it was a bad experience, but it led me to property management. And that was a huge light bulb going off uh, over my head for me because I realized I don't have to do everything. When I buy a house, I can pay someone else to clean it. I can pay somebody else to manage it. I can pay someone else to do everything that's involved in this entire process while I go to work and make more money than what I'm paying the person to do to get it fixed. And that's when I realized, okay, I get it. This is a business and you can run it like a business and set yourself up for retirement when you, uh, when you come of age.
0: So you were, you bought this house, you did like a little house hacking where you were living it and somebody else was there. Didn't go all that well, but then you said, Hey, I think I can make this work. So what were you doing for your full-time job at the time where you were building up enough money to buy your first property?
1: That's a really good question. So I was working as a police officer. I had worked, I had went to college and I lived with my parents in college. So I paid for my school and I paid for my car working in restaurants. I would drive pretty far to get to like the nicest restaurants I could work at, steakhouses or they, they're really expensive. Their tips were gonna be better. So it was a little bit harder than just like working at Applebee's but there was an upside where you could make more money as especially as a college kid I'd be making several hundred bucks a night and I'd just save money really well so it worked out really well that when I graduated school I had everything paid off and I had $90,000 in the bank just from money that I had saved up and I didn't have to pay like you know tuition or I mean you didn't have to pay room and board because I was living at home and so right around that same time is when the market crashed So I took my first year after college to get hired. I got hired as a police officer. I went to the academy. I graduated. I passed my probation. The market tanked. This house was right there. And here I am with money in the bank that I've been saving the entire time. So I I put a down payment on that house. And then I spent a little money to fix it up. Next year, I did the same thing. Next year, I did the same thing. And I... I realized like this real estate thing is really good. Like each house is making me a couple hundred bucks a month. They're going up in value every year. I could see 30 years down the road, they'd be paid off and they'd be making me a ton of money and I wouldn't have to worry about my police retirement. And at the time that was a significant concern because cops were getting laid off. Pensions were under fire. There was a lot of, of controversy between like, should we honor the pensions that we've given to police officers, firefighters, paramedics, stuff like that. Uh, But what happened is I realized I'm working 90 to 100 hours a week to save the money to buy these houses. So at a certain point, California became too expensive. I started buying in Arizona. Arizona became too expensive. I started buying in Florida. And I became known as the guy who who invests long distance. I could go to any state and I could buy a rental property there and, and rent it out and make money on it. But it was just so much work. I mean, it's hard to save thirty dollars to $50,000 to put as a down payment on a house, especially if you've got a family, you've got kids. Now you're struggling with guilt. Should I really be investing this money in this instead of taking the kids to Disneyland or buying them nicer shoes, right? Just complicates everything. It was hard enough for me as a single guy. So what happened is I realized I need to find a way to do this where I'm not just dumping money into properties and letting it sit there. And so instead of saving up $30,000, $40,000 and put it, buying a house with it, I saved up $80,000 and I went and I bought a fixer upper house for 50,000 and I spent 30 to fix it up. So what happened is because I got such a good deal on this house, cause it was in such bad shape and I had spent a total of $80,000, it was now worth 120,000. So the bank said, well, we'll let you borrow 75% of what that house is worth when you're done, once you get the appraisal and 75% of 120,000 is say like 85 or $90,000, right? So, I immediately got more money back than I had put in. And I had this asset that was cash flowing every month and making me money. And I didn't have to leave any of my money in the deal. I got all this money back plus a little extra, which I could then go buy the next house. And that's when I realized, wow, this is super sustainable. If I do it right every time, I could just keep buying and buying and buying. And I could get a big portfolio of real estate and I can actually build some significant wealth rather than just, you know, a couple of houses here, or there over a 20, 30 year period.
0: Well, makes a lot of sense. So what does your portfolio look like now? So now I've got about 35 houses
1: across the country. I'm invested in several multifamily apartments with other investors. We call those syndicators where we all kind of put our money in together and then somebody goes and picks the property and they buy like a big two, 300 unit apartment complex. I've got a couple of mortgage notes where I, I'm like the bank where somebody makes their mortgage payment to me for their house. And then I've got money invested in different funds, like note funds and stuff like that. So I'm very heavily invested in real estate, but it's spread out through different kinds of real estate. And I love investing in real estate for several reasons. I mean, the first is you can make a house worth more than what you paid for it with a little bit of elbow grease. You can add a bedroom, add a bathroom, rehab a kitchen, pay somebody else to do that. You can't do that with a lot of other investment vehicles. If you buy a stock at a price, it's up to the company whether that stock goes up. You don't really have much say in it. You can also borrow money very cheaply to buy real estate. You can borrow 80, 90, even 100% sometimes of of an asset's value from a bank at a super low interest rate. So you're only putting a little bit of money in. And I like to tell people that if you buy a house and and the house costs $200,000 and you had to put $20,000 down, well, if that house goes up to $220,000 the next year, you didn't just get a 10% return on your money. You got a 100% return on your money because you only put $20,000 in. And conversely, if it goes down, if it goes from two hundred down to to dollars it doesn't change anything for you as regarding your cash flow. You've got the same money that's going to be coming in regardless of what the value of the asset does. So there's like no downside. And I have this analogy. It's like a mountain climber climbing a, a mountain with a belay. You can go up. The belay doesn't stop you from going up, but man, it's nice if you fall that you've got something that catches you so you don't keep going. And real estate's one of the few things that will offer offer a belay system as opposed to other asset classes. And then you've just got inflation. I mean, with inflation, things become more expensive. Your rent's gonna go up every year. The value of the asset, it could go up, it could go down, but overall, it's gonna be going up. You get significant tax benefits when you invest in real estate, like significant. Sometimes 100% of the income you earn on that property is tax-sheltered, you don't have to pay taxes on it. And then when you hold it over time, that loan's getting paid down, but your tenant's paying it off for you. So every single payment that you make, a chunk of it is going towards the principal and your loan balance is going down. And I love this concept of, I bought an uh, an asset from person A using money from person B, which would be like the bank. And then I rented it to person C, the tenant, and I use the money from person C to pay back person B, right? Like I'm very, I'm not really involved in this a whole lot. The money that's, that's circling is coming from other people, but I'm the one who gets to benefit from it. And it's a little more work than I think investing in other things. Like if you want to go buy a Bitcoin, you just click a button. And if it goes up, boom, you made a bunch of money and it can it can feel easier. But man, it's not nearly as reliable as real estate. And that's why I love real estate.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, it sounds like your initial motivation was, I would say, preservation or stress reduction when you're saying, hey, these pensions are going away or cops are getting laid off. And with that, with that situation you were in, it's kind of... Projected you into this position you're in right now. So I'm assuming you're not doing police work anymore. What what, are you a full, full, um, uh, fully into real estate?
1: I've, I've taken a leave of absence from police work. So they let me go and I'm doing real estate right now. So I invest in real estate and then I'm also a real estate agent. So I have a real estate team in the Bay area. We sell houses for people out here. I became the top agent in my office, which is the top brokerage in uh, the far East County. And most of that's because I had knowledge about real estate investing. I wasn't a, a total newbie like a lot of people were. And I really feel like, honestly, the other reason is dude, agents you typically suck. It's, <laughs> it's very difficult to find a really good real estate agent. So if you're pretty good, like the, word gets around and, and people hear about that. But yeah, like I've gone all in on real estate. I'm hosting a podcast similar to you. I'm writing books about it. I write for Forbes. I've been on CNN. I've got this real estate team. I was on HGTV. They, they have a show called House Hunters where they, they uh, had me on there. So, I mean, I've seen the power that real estate can have to change a life over several different ways. And real estate's the only thing I've ever found that will pay me back for everything I put into it. Hmm, I love when you're it. a police officer, you give and you give and you give and you just have to expect you're not going to get back, right? It's not why you're doing it. Uh, at, your, at your job that you have, you can give and give and give and your boss may never give you a raise and they may take advantage of you and they may not care. Or you may just be carrying the weight for the guy who's not given at all or the girl who isn't given at all, right? But with real estate, everything that you put into it, it will give you back in spades more than what you put in.
0: I love it. It's exciting, especially for the folks who are listening right now who are thinking this is their first real estate investment and really getting excited about it. So one thing that you mentioned within your story is that you would find these properties in bad shape or like in a rough situation. So describe what that means, because I I don't want to scare anybody off today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is the house falling down? Is the floor coming out? Like, what, what does that mean? What does that mean to find one in bad shape and bring it to life? It's a very
1: good question. When you're investing in real estate, what you're doing is you're buying a little tiny business. Every house you buy isn't just a home. It's actually an income stream. So you're paying a certain amount of money for the right to collect a certain amount of rent. And then you have expenses that go with it. And balancing that is how you decide if you should buy the deal or not. Now, like any good business, if you wanted to go buy a restaurant or you wanted to buy a hotel or anything that's a Craig and auto parts, right? You would look at their books and you would see, well, how much are they making versus how much are they spending? And you want to see they're making more. The more they're making, the more they're going to charge you for that business, right? That's how we, that's how we value businesses. Well, with rental property, what you're hoping for is they've got the opposite thing going on. They are earning less than what it costs them to own it. They're bleeding money and they need to get rid of this. It's an anchor to them and it's pulling them down and you want to be able to step in and buy that anchor, but you can turn it around to where, as opposed to being an anchor, it's a balloon that's going to pull you up, right? So you need a little bit of skills, which you can learn from reading books and blogs and listening to podcasts. It's not rocket science, right? So... I say all that to say you wouldn't want to buy a restaurant that has the walls falling off of it and no employees and they have a terrible reputation for their food and they're in a location no one wants to go to. That would be a bad deal. You want to buy the restaurant in a prime location with a great uh, menu that everybody loves and um, a decent staff, but it's just got a a handful of things they're doing wrong. Like maybe their menu is too big, so a lot of food spoils and they're losing money or Their customer service is really bad because they don't have strong management. And you know, if I just go in there and hire one manager, boom, I can turn that whole thing around, right? That's what you're looking for in real estate. So you don't want to buy something necessarily where the roof is falling off or it's got foundation issues or horrible termites have infested this entire house, right? That's going to be very expensive to fix and you can do it, but you have to get such a good deal to make that make sense. You're much less likely. They're not going to want to sell it at that price instead we look for things that would make a big difference cosmetically but wouldn't cost a ton of money so you don't want electrical problems you don't want plumbing problems you want ugly carpet nasty wallpaper right cabinets that could really use to be painted you want a house that just like smells like cat pee Things that would scare away the average buyer who want nothing to do with it. But to the investor who who doesn't see cat pee, they see a dollar sign. I can fix this problem for $1,400. I can paint that. I can pull up that wallpaper. I can hire a handyman. So rather than getting hit by the emotional, oh, my God, this thing looks horrible, they just convert it into a number and they include it in a spreadsheet, which is much easier to manage. So that's the thing I tell newbies is you want to look for problems that are easy to solve but have a very big impact right? The second thing when you're a little more experienced is you want to look for properties that would not qualify for financing. So you don't want to buy a house that needs to be completely torn down and built back up. That's a project most people don't want to take on. You need some experience for that. You do want to buy a house that a bank would not lend on. Okay. Because when a bank lends on a property, they're thinking, well, what if we have to foreclose on it? We'd have to resell it. And if the house is what they call unhabitable, it's very hard to sell. So for instance, if it has a hole in the roof and like rain can come in the house, that's not habitable. A bank will not lend on it. If it's missing appliances they won't lend on it. That's an easy problem though. Mm -hmm. Just a stove doesn't exist, right? This is like a little, I'll give you guys a little insight into the the real estate world since I'm a cop. A lot of people commit fraud and crime by just removing a stove from a house and saying, oh, it won't be able to sell through a bank because it doesn't have a stove. So you better just sell it to me instead for pennies on the dollar, right? And these these asset managers of banks who don't pay attention to what they have is like, oh, I guess we can't sell it. It's uninhabitable. They don't realize it's a $300 problem that they could fix by putting a stove in there. So you you want to look for little things like that, right? If it doesn't have flooring, like it just has concrete or something, that would be uninhabitable. But, man, that's an easy problem to fix. You could just put some flooring right over the top. It's not a big deal. So when you can find a house that won't qualify for bank financing, you could get a much better deal on it because your competition significantly reduced because not everybody has cash.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. So you walk in there and you smell the cat pee. You don't smell the cat pee. You smell money. That's right.
1: That's exactly right. That's what money smells like.
0: Okay. (laughs) We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsors. per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello and use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Telo plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Telo, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up, the code is valid until April 19th, 2024. marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Telo. Thank you for considering our sponsors, everybody. Let's jump back into the show. All right, let's talk about the rehab process. I've got my uh, my cat pee infested house, and I'm excited about it. And what are the main areas that I should focus in in this house to get the most bang for my buck? I know when I'm shopping for a home to live in, kitchens and bathrooms are really important to me and my wife. But is that the same with uh, um, investment properties?
1: So when you're buying a single family home, which most people will be, it is the same because you want to start from the end and work backwards. And you want to look at what makes a house worth more with single family homes. Homes are valued based on what other houses around them sold for. It's very simple. We call it comparable properties. So if the house across the street, that's the same size, is worth $150,000 and it has a really nice kitchen and it has a landscaped yard and it has a really nice master bathroom, if your house is on the market for one hundred and ten, you can feel very confident that if you made your kitchen and your bathroom and your yard look like that one, you'd be adding $40,000 of equity. And if you can do that for less than $40,000, it makes sense to do it. It's very simple, Right. So that's the first thing you should look for is, yes, like floor plans or actual upgrades that are outdated. Like a a closed off kitchen is something nobody wants. So if it's very simple and you could just knock down a wall and open it up, that makes the house worth more. The other thing I would say is like let's say the house across the street is 1,500 square feet and the house you're looking at is 1,000 square feet. And it's listed for $50,000 less. If you can add square footage to the home and make it the same size as a 1,500 square foot house, that's another way that you can add value to it right? And if you can do it for less than the $50,000 you'd be adding, it's a good bet. So what I do is I look for the house that's undersized and ugly and smells like cat pee and has something wrong with it, right? And then I go and I say, how could I add square footage to this house as cheaply as possible? Does it have a sunroom? Does it have a Florida room? Does it have a utility room that's not included in the square footage, but the infrastructure is built and I just have to run plumbing and electrical to it. And then I can include it in the square footage. Does it have a big old yard, but it's a really small house. And I, I can just ask a contractor, what would it cost to add on to this property? I want to take a thousand square foot house and I want to make it 2000 square feet because the 2000 square feet houses are worth twice as much. And he gives me a bid and the bid says, Hey, we can do all this work for 30 grand, but it's going to add a hundred thousand dollars of value to the house. Absolutely. I'll do that. I'll borrow the 30 grand from the bank. I'll go make the house worth more. Now it's worth $200,000. I can either sell it and I can make some money or I can refinance it. I can get that money back when I'm done. I can go buy my next house.
0: I love it. I love it. Okay, so we've got our we've got our house, and we've uh, found some areas to fix it up. Now we got to get the right people in it. You mentioned in your story that you just found somebody quickly online, and it didn't really work out. So what what process do you go through now to find the right tenants?
1: Now I have just been humbled enough to recognize David Green does not know how to find tenants. That is not what David does well. In <laughs> fact, the more successful I am in life, the more I recognize the things I'm not good at, and I have well, other. Let's people talk do about that. property management then,
0: because that can be yeah. a plus for people, especially if you're thinking, "Man, I, you know, I've got a full time job. I'm not sure I can dedicate all my time to finding the house, rehabbing it, filling it with tenants." Like, talk about talk about the benefits of property management. I guess
1: that is the number one thing everybody should give up first. Right, if you're handy and you want to do some of the work on the property yourself, knock yourself out. If you don't have other opportunities to 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 make more money, right? But property management is hard, and it is does not pay well. For, for the $100, $150 a month that I give a property manager to manage a property, God, the amount of time that that saves me and the headache. And not only the time it saves me to do the work, but the time it saves me to get good at doing what they have to do. It's a skill, right? Like, it's just like being an agent. A lot of people say, well, should I just get a license so I can sell my own house? And, like, yeah, but that's kind of like saying, should I go to medical school so I can, like, treat my kids when they're sick, right? Like, you can become a doctor, you can become a lawyer, you can become whatever, but do you want to take the time it takes to get good at doing that thing? Because, it's a thing. So, I like to leverage as much as I can onto the people that are good. And property management the first thing I go to. The, the number one reason is because they're doing the hardest job that pays the lease. It's the easiest one to leverage. The next reason I like to do that is they are in the business of real estate. These are experts. If they're good, these are people that are dealing with tons of other investors, tons of landlords, tons of tenants. They know property values. They know the parts of town that are good versus bad. They, do, they know which houses they're going to get a good tenant in. They know what a good tenant looks like, right? They're experienced in doing this all the time. Use them for their knowledge. If you're if you're feeling insecure and, and you don't know exactly what you should be looking for, talk to your property manager about it. That's what I do. when I, I go buy in markets that I've never even been to. I have an opportunity to buy a house in Kentucky. I'm going to talk to my property manager and say, what do I need to know about these Kentucky houses? What part of town do I want to buy in? What style of home does the tenant want? Where are all the jobs? Where are people working, right? Where are all the people that are going to be on probation or whatever, where like the, the cops are going to be there all the time kicking down the door and I don't want to necessarily have to buy a new door? every month. They know all that stuff. So you don't have to learn it all. You just have to find the people that do know it.
0: I love it. I love it. Okay. So we've, we've, we bought the house. We got it uh, fixed up. We got somebody in it that we like, cause we got a great property management team to help us. Now we need to refinance it and do this process again. So how do we, how do I get my house refinanced? Sure. So I've already done all that work. It's looking great. What are the steps to meet with the right banker and get that done? And what's, so the, your best- and what's the right amount too? Sorry. I should have asked that as well.
1: Your best bet would be before you even get involved in the process to have met with a banker and said, hey, I want to do this. Will it work for you guys? And most banks are going to say yes. They're going to have loan programs that you can find out about before you start. So the first thing that you're going to want to ask about is the interest rate and they're going to tell you whatever their current interest rates are, but that doesn't mean that's what it's going to be two or three months later when you go to refinance. So keep that in mind. The next thing you're going to ask about is what we call the loan to value. Bankers call this the LTV and that's the ratio that they will let you borrow versus what the house is worth. So whenever we go buy a home, what we think is I had to put 10% down, but what the bank is thinking is I had to lend him 90% of the value of that house. And the, the smaller percent that they're lending you, the safer it is for them because they're always looking at, what if you can't make your payment? We have to take the house back and resell it. The more that we've given that person, the harder it is to get that money back, right? So banks always want a lower LTV and investors always want a higher LTV because we want more of that money back to go invest in the next property. So you can typically find the balances for an investment property right around 75%, which would be the equivalent of buying an, a house at 25% down. Right. In the traditional method, if you put 25% down, you then go have to put your rehab into the house. You've made the house worth more, but it doesn't matter because that just shows on paper. In the Burr method, when you when you spend all the money up front – and by the way, it doesn't have to be your own cash. You can partner with a friend. You can borrow it from your 401K. You can get a private money loan, a hard money loan. There's, there's lots of creative financing options if you don't have that much money just sitting in your bank account. But once you bought it and fixed it up, you're borrowing 75% of the asset once it's worth more right? Not when you bought the house for 60,000, but when it was worth $120,000. That's the key that makes Burr work is you leave less money in the deal. So you have more money that you could go reinvest. Your ROI is a lot higher because you invested less money and you get better at investing in real estate because you can keep buying. So the refinance part shouldn't be hard as long as you go to the bank first. If you have really bad credit, um, if you, haven't had a a job that a bank would consider suitable for, for giving a loan. You don't want to be super invested in this deal and then find out, Oh shoot, I can't refinance it. Right. You really want to get pre approved before you start the whole thing and have an idea of where you're headed. Um, but most of the time, your first four deals will be pretty easy to refinance. Then your next six will be kind of difficult to get up to 10. Once you've got 10 loans, which most people never even get to, they always worry about this, but like by the time you get to 10 loans, you've got skills to figure out how to get more. You can't get the same loans that a normal person gets. You can't get a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, like government-sponsored loan. You have to get a little bit more creative with going to portfolio lenders or commercial lenders to get your loans. Um, but like I was saying, once you get to that number, you have so much experience and so much confidence in this, it's not very difficult to do.
0: And then are you getting to a point where you're starting to make that money back from your tenants where you're throwing that at the mortgage? Or are you letting the 30-year or 15-year ride until they're paid off? What, what what are your What are your goals there?
1: I let it ride because the interest rate is so low, right? Sometimes you're borrowing four five, 6% money, but your the return on your investment is like 20 to 70%, depending how much money I left in there. So what I'll do is, is it's similar to this. I'll buy the house, I'll fix it up, I'll rent it out. And maybe I'll wait six months before I refinance it. Right. So because I have no mortgage, let's say it's running for a thousand a month. I've got no mortgage on the house. All I'm paying is the taxes and insurance. Let's say that I'm saving out of that thousand dollars, 300 of it goes to tax insurance and I'm keeping 700. I'll put that 700 in the bank and I'll use that as my reserves. So six months of this and I've got $4,200 that I now have as a reserve account in case something goes wrong with that house. Then I will go refinance it. Once I refinance it, my cash flow drops from 700 down to 200 or so. Let's say it's 500 bucks a month for my mortgage so I'm only making 200 a month, but I've gotten all my money back out of the deal. I have a loan that I'm slowly paying off. Next year, the rent's going to go up from a thousand to, you know, a little bit more than that, like a thousand fifty. So now my cash flow is 250 instead of 200, and I'm just playing the long game. It's very conservative. It's very safe. It's very boring. But getting rich slow is the best way to get rich.
0: That makes a lot of sense, David. There's a lot of Dave Ramsey fans that listen to this show, uh, just based on you know my background and some of the things that we've talked about about getting rid of your debt. You know, uh, if somebody's listening right now and they say, "Well, you know, if I saved up all of my money to buy the first one, why wouldn't I just save up all my money to buy the next one and, and not have any loans to own to anybody? Why, why do you feel like it's best to do burr instead of the other way around? You
1: can do that. You're going. It's it's very similar to a person who has no weight running a race versus you that's saddling yourself with fifty pounds of weights and saying, "Well, this is safer," and trying to run that same same race. You are not going to get close to as far as that person can get, who's unencumbered to run. Right, Dave Ramsey. I'm a fan of his. He's very big on keeping you safe, and he knows that a lot of people will use debt in a negative way because it's you can be careless and reckless and there's no debt police to make sure you're not doing it wrong, right? I look at it like there's good debt and there's bad debt. Bad debt is buying something that costs me money every month, a motorcycle, an RV, a boat, cars. They become worthless every month and I have to put money into them. Good debt is something that I buy that makes me money every month. A rental property is earning me more money than what it's costing, right? So I want, in my strategy, to, to take out as much healthy debt as I possibly can, maintain a healthy amount of reserves, and live beneath my means so I never have to worry about if I couldn't make those payment in a worst-case scenario, and then let my tenant pay that debt off for me. In, in a world that we live in where people don't manage money well, there will always be tenants, Right. They're going to need a place to live. Absolutely right. So why not give them a place to live and let them pay my mortgage for me because they didn't manage their money well. And I benefit from the fact I do manage my money well while also giving them what they need. If there was no tenants in the world and everyone wanted to buy a home, I think Dave Ramsey's advice would probably make a little bit more sense. But there's such a demand of people that need somewhere to live. And the difference between saving up five or $10,000, which is what you might leave in a deal after you burr, and $100,000, which is what it would take to buy it is massive. I mean, human beings are not living to 900 years like they did in, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Methuselah's age to where we can afford to get by. You don't have that long and you're not going to make much progress if that's the way you do it.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I know you're, you're full in on real estate and you, you feel like this is the great place to go. Do you also invest in the stock market or are you full in on real estate and you leave all that alone?
1: I have a mutual fund that I think my great grandma set up for me when I was born, and I've never touched it, and that's the only stuff I have in stocks. It's everything that I make. I mean, I'm pretty much able to live off of the the income that my properties make, and I live a very frugal lifestyle. So 100% of the money I earn from either book sales or real estate sales or whatever else I do goes back into investing in real estate. And, and it's very simple. I look at 30 years ago, what my parents paid for their first house. So they bought a house in Manteca, California for $62,000. It was just a three, two starter home, right? That house is now worth a little under 400,000 and it would have been paid off by now. Right. <laughs> and my parents were not financial geniuses. They just bought a house like a lot of people did and inflation did the rest of the work. And not only did their house go from 60,000 to 400,000, but their down payment was only like $6,000. So they turned 6,000 into 400,000. And I just assume that 30 years from now, with the way that our country spends money, inflation is going to be even more than what it was over the last 30 years. right? And I want as many of those opportunities to turn $6,000 into $400,000 as I can possibly can so that I can be safe in retirement. My loved ones can be safe in retirement. I'll have the financial means to help people, When I see that people need help, I don't want to put my financial security into the hands of the government and social security and just trust somebody else should take care of me. In general, I don't think it ever works out when we put other people in charge of our own well-being, right? Like it's better when we're taking responsibility for our own selves. And real estate is the easiest way for the average everyday Joe to do this. That doesn't have access to insider stock secrets, or they're not going to develop the next app. That's going to become worth a billion dollars, right? Real estate is like planting a tree. You're going to wait a long time before it bears fruit. But when it does bear fruit, you just eat that fruit every single year. And once you get orchards of them, you can be a wealthy person and it's very hard to lose money that way.
0: I love it. What do they say, uh, buy land or they're not making it anymore, or something like that? Yeah, like that. that's like a really that good quote. Yep. <laughs> All right, David, well, this was a lot of fun. We really appreciate you going through a lot of the details with Burr and why it makes sense for people and how people can really thrive with this strategy. Where can people buy your book that's dedicated on this very subject?
1: Well, thank you, Andy. It's uh, you can pre-order it right now. If you, if you search Google, you can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart. Uh, it's buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. If you put in that with David Green, it should show up in a Google search very quickly. And then my first book I wrote is Long Distance Real Estate Investing, How to Buy, Manage, and uh, Rehab Out of State Rental Properties. And it's, those two strategies are really all that I use to buy my own properties. I go find a state where houses are cheap and rents are high. I look for a fixer upper property and I burr it. And I just keep planting these little trees all over the place. And I'm waiting in life for them to start bearing fruit.
0: I love this orchard methodology. It's very cool. <laughs> very cool. So, and and how about the podcast? Where can people find the Bigger Pockets Podcast?
1: Yes, it is Bigger Pockets Podcast. It's a real estate podcast where we basically do what you're doing. We every week we interview a real estate investor and say, How did you do it? How'd you build your portfolio? What'd you do to do it? Where do you invest? What kind of properties do you buy? How do you find your money? And we just dig in and get those people to explain like, hey, this is how I did it. So the other people who are interested can like hear how it works, right? Most of us as human beings, we're, we're afraid to take the first step that's normal. It really helps when you have an idea where you're walking. And that's why I'm a big fan of listening to podcasts and reading books because it's not something you couldn't have figured out on your own. It just makes it easier when you hear what somebody else did and you can kind of copy
0: Absolutely. Hey everybody, if you really wanna learn about real estate, I'm just touching on it once a quarter here on this show. If you guys really wanna dive deep, Bigger Pockets is a fantastic podcast you gotta check out. I listen to it weekly and I love it a lot. So David, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks, Andy. It was a blast.
0: My real estate knowledge continues to grow. I feel like I'm getting a master's degree in real estate investing through all of these podcast interviews, and I hope you are digging it, too. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with David Green. Number one, cat pee smells like a deal. (laughs) When we're looking for our first rental property, David Green told us to look for cosmetic fixes that most buyers will shy away from, including smelly, smelly cat pee. (laughs) This also includes things like ugly wallpaper, dated carpeting, and walls that can be easily knocked down to create a more open concept. The point here is to keep an open mind and see the potential, or I guess smell the potential for that matter. (laughs) Number two, add value to your rental. Think about ways to add value to your rental before the refinance process. Can you add square footage by transforming a sunroom? Can you... Bring the kitchen into this decade with some new countertops and cabinets. Fixes like these can definitely help with raising your property's value. Number three, consider the benefits of property management. If you're thinking you don't want to deal with tenants and fix toilets and deal with evictions, according to David, you're normal. Don't let that stop you from investing in real estate though. Partnering with a good property manager can allow you to not worry so much about the small stuff and then put it, put all that small stuff in the hands of an expert. For the cost of like 10% of your rents, That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. So those were my top three takeaways. Number one, cat pee smells like a deal. Number two, add value to your rental. And then number three, consider the benefits of property management. David, thank you so much for helping us learn and be better prepared for our first rental property. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. Before we go for the day, I would like to ask you to do any one of these three things to support this show. Number one, subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash marriagekidsandmoney. I am posting all of these interviews that I'm doing via video. On there every week. So it's a cool way for you to see what everybody looks like. <laughs> number two, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. So we're hanging out every week. And then number three, share this episode with a friend who is considering their first rental property. You can find this show and all the links and resources mentioned at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 132. And there'll actually be a transcript of my interview with David there as well. So yeah, I want to I provide all the resources for you guys. You got video, you got a transcript, you got this podcast, any way you want to consume this content, I'm going to make it available for you. And if you're new to the show, I would highly recommend you check out Session 116, The 10 Steps to Young Family Wealth and Happiness. You can find that at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Session 116. It is a great place to start. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from John D. Rockefeller. The major fortunes in America have been made in land. Your family fortune starts here, my friends. Carpe diem!